Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett, and Sabrina is away on a business trip, but she's going to magically show up for the dinosaur of the day, so you're not going to miss out on anything good. <laughs> and speed of the dinosaur of the day, it's Lillian Sternus. We also have a bunch of dinosaur news, and as always, we would like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, and this week we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, and Lindsay Burns. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate the support that you give us, and if you'd like to join our growing group of patrons and help us pay for our upcoming trip to Canada, where we're going to cover tons of dinosaur news and hopefully get in some good interviews while we're there, then you should head over to patreon.com slash inodino. So jumping right into the news, we have a new article published in Nature's Scientific Reports by Chien Zorig Songbatar and others, and it's about a new ornithomimid discovered in southern Mongolia, and that's actually the country of Mongolia, not inner Mongolia that's in China. This is just the southern part of Mongolia. It's called A.P. ornithomimus tugricanensis, and A.P. ornithomimus literally means high bird mimic. You probably recognize the ornithomimus part of that dinosaur name. But it's kind of interesting because Apiornis is the technical scientific genus for the elephant bird group. So it could also be translated as elephant bird mimic, which I think is what the authors actually intended. So it's kind of a funny thing, and it's pretty accurate. I mean, elephant birds actually look a lot like ornithomimosaurs. Tugricanensis refers to the locality where it was found in Mongolia. And what they found was an entire foot, which includes three metatarsals, three toes, and what we would probably call a heel. It has a different name in Latin, and it's weird because dinosaurs, you know, their foot is really like the bottom third of their leg when you look at them, and it looks like their knee bends backwards or that they have two knees and one bends backwards, but really they're just standing on their tiptoes and their foot kind of sticks up part of their leg. So the heel that you'd call it is like really way off the ground and it only really ever touches the ground if they kind of lay down. So it's a pretty sizable piece of the animal, even though that's all that they found. They didn't guess at its size, probably because they don't have the femur or some other bones that they would usually use for that kind of size estimate. But the longest metatarsal is 21 centimeters or 8.3 inches long. And if you think about your own foot, the metatarsal is that thing kind of by the arch of your foot, like the front of your arch through to your toe. It's like the first bone connected to the toe bone. <laughs> I feel like I should break into a song. So on a, on a human, it's probably just like two or three inches long, and it's eight inches long on this guy. Granted, they're a little bit elongated because of that whole weird leg slash foot thing they have going on. But still, it's a pretty big dinosaur. It's not like one of those little troodontids that we talk about that are, you know, the size of a turkey or something. It was likely around about 70 to 80 million years ago, and it was in the late Cretaceous. It's closely related to Struthiomimus and Gallimimus, 
And the area that it's found in is known for lots of dromaeosaurids, but this is the first Arnithomimid from the immediate area, so that's pretty cool. Get a little more diversity going. Something I found interesting is that the area would have been semi-arid back 70 to 80 million years ago because they found sandstone in the sediment. And we don't talk too much about sandstone. And a lot of times when we're talking about dinosaurs, we talk about how, well, back then it was actually like a forest, whereas now it looks like a desert. You know, you have to remember that the world was different 80 million years ago. But in this case, it's a desert now. And back then, I guess it was only semi-arid. So there was still a lot of sand around, apparently. But there we go. We got another new dinosaur. So we're on track about with our one every two weeks or so. <laughs> got to get like 30 dinosaurs in a year. Next up are a pair of papers that talked about how fast dinosaurs could move. And specifically, they kind of looked at T-Rex. The first paper was published by the Royal Society by Bishop and others. And what they did was they looked at late Triassic dinosaur prints, as well as humans and 11 types of ground-dwelling birds to test how fast they might have walked and ran. So when we run, our tracks get closer together when we switch from walking to running, but there isn't really much of a in-between, you know, it's like when you're walking, you're going pretty slow, like three or four miles an hour. Then you're running and you're going more like 10 miles an hour. But we don't really have a speed for like six or seven miles an hour. I guess you could jog slowly, but it's kind of the same type of gait. You have one foot airborne and then the other foot lands in front of it. And while you're running, your feet actually run along a midline. So you don't run like you're trying to psych someone out in basketball or something with your feet going off to the side. Like that's pretty unnatural feeling. When we walk, we walk with our feet really far apart. But running, we run with our feet like directly in front of one another, basically. And that's basically true for long-legged birds too. Unfortunately, birds do have a big transitional range. So it's not like they just go from walking to running they have what they call grounded running, and that's more like a power walk kind of thing than a run. So one foot is always still on the ground, but they can do that a lot faster than people can. If you've ever watched a bird kind of run along on the ground, you might notice that they can go really quick and still keep one foot on the ground all the time. There are also differences between the birds. So when you're just looking at their tracks, you can't really tell how fast they're going based on how far apart their tracks are because it varies from bird to bird. So they do always get closer together to that midline as they go faster, but how much faster they have to go in order for their feet to get X amount closer depends on the specific bird. So it makes it pretty difficult to use dinosaur footprints to see how fast they were going, unfortunately. It'd be nice if there was always like a really consistent formula we could use, but that turns out not to be the case. So how T-Rex got involved in this is, you know, because you always have to talk about T-Rex, that's the dinosaur everyone wants to hear about. And so they thought about what it would do if it was moving quickly. And they kind of said, well, grounded running makes a lot of sense. That's kind of how the tracks look some of the time. And if a T-Rex is grounded running, it's not lumbering back and forth like it is in Jurassic Park where it kind of like plops one foot down and then it leans over the other way and plops the other foot down to the other side. 
the feet would be pretty close to a midline, just like you'd expect something running to look like. And there are a few advantages to grounded running the way birds do it. First of all, it's more stable because you always have one foot on the ground, and that helps with their balance and it helps keep their vision steady, so it might help with hunting. It also reduces the impact stress quite a bit when they're running because they're not landing on a foot from airborne. They're just putting the next foot in front of the other foot while the previous foot is still on the ground. So it's a little easier on the joints. The way most of the news articles I saw published this is that they said it could allow T-Rex to move faster. But really what they said was, quote, Therefore, the predator can move faster while still maintaining stability and lowered musculoskeletal stresses. This would be particularly advantageous for the large to giant species, e.g. Allosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, and Giganotosaurus, whose athletic abilities have previously been questioned. End quote. So they're not really saying that T-Rex would have moved faster than, say, the T-Rex that's depicted in Jurassic Park. What they're saying is that the T-Rex could still move fast, and it wouldn't have to basically walk at a slow pace because it was so big and heavy. It could use this grounded running technique to go at a pretty good pace. But speaking of questioning their athletic capabilities, the other paper that came out that was published in Pure J by Sellers and others took a biomechanical approach to seeing how fast T-Rex could move. And I want to give a thank you to Chris on Twitter and Philip for sharing this one with us. And I also need to give a shout out to Archaic Z on Reddit for the great comparison between the two articles, because <laughs> literally the way most of the popular media presented it was there was one article that said T-Rex is faster than we thought. And then the other article says T-Rex is slower than we thought, but that's not really what they said at all. So anyway... What these researchers did was they did an analysis of the stress on the skeleton while an adult T-Rex moved, and they hypothesized that the long legs, which are purported to help running, could also increase stress on the dinosaur, and therefore it wouldn't actually be able to take advantage of its long legs into a full running gait. So long story short, they did their simulations, and they found that aerial running would likely lead to bone-damaging stress, so it probably wouldn't have run in a traditional sense where both feet are completely off the ground and you have to land just on one leg over and over again. And because of that, they arrived at a maximum speed of 7.7 meters per second, which is 27 kilometers an hour, or 17 miles per hour. And just for some reference, Elephants can go 40 kilometers an hour or 25 miles an hour, and Usain Bolt can hit 45 kilometers an hour or 28 miles an hour, but a lot of people probably still couldn't outrun this T-Rex. 17 miles an hour is a pretty good pace. I think the fastest pace I ever did a quarter mile at is about 15 miles an hour. So if it could run a quarter mile at its peak speed, I'd be in trouble. Hopefully there will be somewhere to hide or something. So Tom Holtz pointed a few things out on Facebook after being prompted for responses about this article. 
He says that they only looked at an adult T-Rex, which is actually really significant because like when we talked to the Saurian team, they mentioned that as dinosaurs grow up, a lot of times they have different sorts of prey and different types of hunting styles that match their size and proportions. So it's likely that a juvenile T-Rex could have been faster than a full-grown T-Rex. But it seems like all of these articles always just look at adult T-Rexes. The study also didn't look at the maximum speed of its prey, so saying that it was slower than we thought it was is a little bit misleading because slower compared to what? Slower compared to a previous theoretical speed? Possibly. But slower compared to its prey? I mean, maybe all of its prey is slower than we thought it was too, in which case it's still the fastest thing around and none of that really makes a difference. It's still really fast. <laughs> Holtz also points out that they skipped demonstrating validation of the model with extant or modern animals. Really the best way to verify that a model is working is you build your model and then you test it with things where you can falsify it. So if you're going to build a model for how an animal moves, it makes sense to then put in a model of something that's alive and see if it moves the way you expect it to and that the top speed is what you expect it to be. We've seen a few of those recently with the maximum stress of T-Rex bite force. They'll compare crocodiles and other animals just to verify their model before they apply it to T-Rex, but that didn't seem to be a part of this paper. Or if it was, they just didn't publish that part of it. Really, what I would like to see, though, is for these two groups to work together and make a grounded running model of a T-Rex. The video that they show of the t-rex kind of looks like grounded running but it looks a little bit more like just fast walking so i'm not sure if it's really at its peak speed that they could come up with with this model and everybody wants to know exactly how fast t-rex could go so might as well give it a shot and i didn't mention it earlier but the first group didn't give a specific speed for how fast they thought t-rex or other dinosaurs could go because as they were saying, the prints and tracks aren't very consistent between different animals. So it wasn't really useful in giving a specific number. Next up, we've got a really fun paleopathology article. I know a lot of people are really into that. I really enjoy it personally. It was published in Cretaceous Research by Romana Gonzalez and others. And what they found was several pathologies in a specimen of Bonitasaura, which is a titanosaur from Argentina. Specifically, on the femur, they found a bony outgrowth, which <laughs> they said could have been caused by three things. Trauma, an infection, or a tumor. And in this case, they think that the tumor is most likely due to kind of lack of other evidence that you'd see typically with trauma or an infection in the area. They also found an abnormal growth on a metatarsal, which is that part of the foot I was talking about earlier, and they said that there were two potential causes of this abnormal growth. It could have been an osteochondroma, which is a benign growth, which is often from cancer, or an enthesophyte, I think is how you say it, which is a bony projection along a tendon or ligament attachment point. And we've mentioned those before. They're kind of what they describe as cauliflower-like growths, which just is so gross. 
but it's caused by either a disease or by repetitive stress injuries. And they think that it's most likely that it's a repetitive stress injury because there aren't any other diseased cauliflower growths in the area, which seems to mean that it's probably repetitive stress. The last paleopathology is on a tail vertebra, and there there's some bone inflammation, which was probably caused by an infection. And the way they know that it was probably an infection is that there's a new pore that opened up for drainage. It's also pretty gross, but I guess, you know, pathologies tend to be. They said, quote, bone infections occur when pathogenic organisms invade the bone, such as bacteria, viruses, parasites, etc., end quote. So apparently something nasty got into the tail of this dinosaur and started causing trouble. The researchers say that it's the first report of multiple pathologies in a titanosaur and that it would have limited the locomotor capabilities of the animal. So not a great time to be a bonitasaura, apparently, but pretty interesting. It's always kind of cool to see how much information we can get out of these bones, especially when a lot of the bones are incomplete or otherwise deformed by fossilization, that we can find these little tiny details and learn about just what was going on while the dinosaur was alive. On a happier note, Connecticut now has an official state dinosaur, Dilophosaurus. In the mid-1960s, dinosaur tracks thought to be a close relative of Dilophosaurus were found in Rocky Hill by a bulldozer operator, and possibly because of that, now Dilophosaurus is their state dinosaur. So, cool. I always like it when more state dinosaurs are popping up. If you're a big emoji fan, you might have noticed that Apple has released a sneak peek of their T-Rex emoji, and T-Rex, for some reason, is hyphenated by the emoji consortium. I don't know why. I guess maybe putting periods in the middle doesn't look as good or something, but the correct spelling is definitely T period space Rex, but T hyphen Rex is everywhere. And we were guilty of this in the early days of the podcast too. <laughs> We've been going back and correcting it when we see it. So I guess we can't be too judgmental. But I'm going to be judgmental about the picture that they picked because it's really not a very good looking T-Rex. It's very cartoony. It basically looks like Barney except green and with more teeth. But like the teeth are very crocodile-like. You know, there's teeth that stick up as well as down across the lips, but there wouldn't have been any teeth sticking up because T-Rex didn't have an underbite at all. You know, they didn't overlap and interlock. The top teeth went completely around the bottom teeth. So it's pretty weird that they chose to do that. And they gave it these really tiny, lame arms. And I, I know T-Rex, it has small arms, but these are almost like emaciated looking like they have no muscle on them at all and i think t-rex is estimated to be able to curl like 300 pounds or something so it had quite a bit of muscle on its arms regardless of how big they were relative to its legs but definitely the posture is what bugs me the most since it's like completely upright the emoji has also come out on both twitter and facebook and i just had to test those so if you see when i posted those tweets you'll know exactly when i recorded this podcast 
but <laughs> the Facebook one's really weird because the T-Rex has completely yellow teeth and yellow eyes. I don't know why they did that. I mean, it's like got some serious vitamin deficiency like scurvy or something going on that it's all turning yellow. And then the Twitter one is completely brown, which is interesting. And it also seems to have yellow teeth. But at least the Twitter one is kind of mostly horizontal and its arms look relatively reasonable, although they kind of look pronated. But anyway, those are the only two places that I can see that have released their emojis so far. They didn't show up on my phone yet, so they're not on Android at least. And apparently Apple isn't going to release them until later this year. There's also going to be the sauropod emojis, and those look a lot better in my opinion. The Twitter one looks a little bit good dinosaur-y, you know, kind of cartoony, but I kind of like it, you know, it's pretty cutesy. And then the Facebook one went for another, like, pretty intense sort of realistic one, also with yellow teeth for some reason, but it looks pretty realistic. It looks a lot like uh, Brachiosaurus, I think is what they're going for. So if you want to use some new dinosaur emojis on Facebook or Twitter, now you can. In local news depending on where local is to you. <laughs> Fossilized hadrosaur teeth have been found in the Nagasaki prefecture in Japan. They're 81 million years old, and there are 35 teeth that have been found. The teeth were about 1.7 centimeters tall and one centimeter wide, which is, what, about three quarters of an inch tall? Maybe a third of an inch wide? Visitors can see the teeth from now until September 18th at the Nagasaki Science Museum. The Virginia Museum of Natural History in Martinsville, Virginia, now and for the next year, has on display fossils from a triceratops that has bite marks from a T-Rex. The fossils were unveiled as part of the museum's Dino Festival, and these fossils have evidence of regrowth, which shows that the T-Rex bit the Triceratops while it was alive, and that the Triceratops survived and healed. It also shows that T-Rex was at least some of the time a hunter, and not just a scavenger. From now until September 3rd, London Zoo has robotic dinosaurs at their time travel safari exhibit called Zoo-Rassic Park. I wonder how they came up with that one. <laughs> dinosaurs include T-Rex and Triceratops. There's another dinosaur coin available, and this one comes from the Westminster Collection. It's minted for the Cook Islands, and it's a 24-karat gold-plated coin, and it has a full-color image of a T-Rex on one side, and of course, Queen Elizabeth II on the other side. The coin also comes with a UV flashlight so you can see a hidden T-Rex skeleton on the coin. The coin only costs 9.99 pounds, and it's limited edition to only 9,500. I really want to get this one. I couldn't find it on their international site. I tried to go to the regular site, and it was like, oh, you're not from the UK. You have to use this other site, and then I couldn't find the coin, but I want it. Because we got those Canadian coins that are cool, but there's no UV skeleton going on. It sounds awesome. You also might remember that a while back we talked about a student who designed a dinosaur purse that went viral because Miss Ho Ching, the wife of the Prime Minister of Singapore, was seen carrying it while visiting the White House. So that student's dinosaur motif 
is now being printed on EasyLink cards as a limited edition series to promote the inclusion of people with autism and celebrate their artistic talents. So EasyLink cards, if you're not familiar, are the public transit cards in Singapore. And the student who designed the dinosaur motif is a student of Pathlight, the first autism-focused school in Singapore. The dinosaur motif cards are available in six colors for $8 each, and part of the proceeds will go to fund programs that support Pathlight's artist development program. If there was a BART clipper card that had dinosaurs on it, I would definitely get it. (laughs) And before we get into the dinosaur of the day, I just want to give a quick reminder that we have our new patron level, the Spinosaurus level at $50, where you get exclusive access to our audiobooks as soon as they come out for a period of about a month before we release it to anybody else. And you also get copies of all of our ebooks. Our first audiobook should be coming out before we get to SVP, because otherwise it won't come out for a long time. (laughs) So we're trying to get it out before SVP. And If you sign up to be a patron before SVP, then you'll be able to see the video that we make while we're at SVP to highlight some of the things that we do and see there. And if you're at the Stegosaurus level or above, you'll get a postcard from us. And we've sent postcards in the past, and it's really fun to send out postcards where we can send like a more personal message than we can using the podcast. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, head over to patreon.com slash inodino or grab the link from our show notes. And now on to the dinosaur of the day, Lillian Sternis, which was a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube. So thanks. Lillian Sternis was a basal neotherapod that lived in the Triassic in what is now Germany. It was found in the Trossigen Formation along with fossils of Rulia, a sauropodomorph, by Count Hugo Ruhl von Lillenstern in 1932 to 1933. Hugo Ruhl von Lillenstern was a count, amateur paleontologist, and medical doctor. He founded a paleontological museum in his castle in Bedwein, Germany in July 1934. What is being a count? Is that like being a lord? I think he was born into it, yeah, and it's just a title. Interesting. (laughs) So I don't know how much you have to do as a count. (laughs) You have to count things from what I've learned on Sesame Street. I don't think it's like that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He's not purple and he's not vampire-ish. Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) Anyway, the Lillienstern's specimens were in Hugo Ruhl von Lillienstern's castle until 1969 when they were moved to the Humboldt Museum in Berlin. So as you probably guessed by now, Lillienstern's Lillienstern-i, which is the full name, (laughs) is named after the Count. Twice. Twice, yeah, <laughs> the type species. So Lillian Sternis was originally assigned to Halticosaurus in 1935 as Halticosaurus Lillian Sterni. So Frederick von Hune named Halticosaurus in 1908, but now most bones thought to be Halticosaurus have been reassigned to other dinosaurs, including Lillian Sternis. Oh, okay. So it didn't start as Lillian Sternis, Lillian no. Sterni. <laughs> <laughs> that would be too crazy. Yeah. No. So... Gil Cooney and Peter Galton described a new species, Lillianstirnus erlensis, in 1993, but there were more differences found between Lillianstirnus erlensis and Lillianstirnus lillianstirni, and in 2007, Martin Escura and Cooney named it as a new genus, 
Lophostrophius. Samuel Paul Wells found in 1984 that Halticosaurus longitarsus, the type species of Halticosaurus, was a nomum dubium. And most descriptions of Halticosaurus were about Halticosaurus lilienstirni, so Wells named the new genus Lilienstirnus in 1984. A left metatarsal found in 1834 was later assigned to Lilienstirnus. It was first thought to be a manual or pedal element in 1855, and then in 1908 was thought to be a pubic fragment of Platiosaurus. Then it was re-identified as part of Lilienstirnus in 2003. More bones found in 1961 were referred to Lillian Sturtis in 1992 by Sander. They were found in Switzerland. Specimens found may have been a juvenile or a subadult. There were two specimens found, and they included parts of the skull, lower jaws, vertebrae, tibia, and femur. Lillian Sturtis is thought to be up to 17 feet or 5 meters long and weighed 280 pounds or 127 kilograms, though some estimate it to weigh up to 441 pounds or 200 kilograms. It could be an intermediate between Coelophysis and Dilophosaurus, hmm. but the tibia is shorter than its femur, just like Dilophosaurus. It may have also had a crest like Dilophosaurus, but the skull of Lilienstirni is not well known. It also had a short hip bone in Ilium, like Dilophosaurus. And in 1989, Rowe said that Lilienstirnus was more derived than Dilophosaurus. Lilienstirnus was a bipedal carnivore. It may have preyed on Platyosaurus, a basal sauropodomorph that lived around the same time and place. And it was probably fast and could catch ornithischians, and it could use its teeth to slash and wound prosauropods like Platyosaurus. And Lilienstirnus probably lived on floodplains along with reptiles and therapsids, which gave rise to mammals. Indeed. A little mini fun fact there. Yeah. <laughs> And before we get into the fun fact, I just want to mention we were on the Wigging Out podcast, and Wigging is spelled with two I's and one G, at least only one G in the wig part, There's still the G at the end of the word. The podcast is all about Kristen Wig, and we were on to talk about Ice Age Dawn of the Dinosaurs for obvious reasons. I didn't realize Kristen Wig was in it because she only has like one line in the entire movie, and she plays an unnamed beaver character, I think. But anyway, we were on the podcast talking a lot about the dinosaurs that are in the movie. So if you're interested in hearing our take on that, check out the latest episode of the Wigging Out podcast. And our fun fact of the day is that transitional, meaning a transitional fossil or a transitional species, is a pretty misleading term. There's a great paper that was recently published in Paleontologica Electronica by Mario Bronzati, and he really talks about how transitional implies there's some type of desired evolutionary path, which really doesn't make sense. So since evolution is completely random, there's no desired outcome that an organism has. It's always just mutating randomly and then if there's a beneficial mutation, that organism will do better than the peers that don't have that mutation, and that causes this evolution over time with survival of the fittest and all that good stuff. It's not like a dinosaur, say a sauropodomorph, wants to become a giant titanosaur and somehow decides I need four legs rather than being bipedal in order to transition into this enormous dinosaur. It's really only with hindsight bias 
that it looks like these dinosaurs are transitioning into something else. Really, since this takes place over millions of years, that dinosaur has changed a little bit, but it's filling its niche just fine. It's not like it's passing through a transitional phase, like an animal that's growing up over the course of a few years. That's all it is. You know, that's the animal it grows up to be. And for all it knows, that's what its children would look like forever. And it, it, there's no problem with that. The word transitional also implies that we're finding missing links and that there's kind of a straight line evolutionary path. But evolution is really a lot more like a shrub. There's tons of dead ends everywhere all over the place. And really, that's what we're finding most of the time. We're not finding a dinosaur that evolved directly into another dinosaur and that evolved directly into another dinosaur. Like, you can't start with Archaeopteryx and end with a chicken. Archaeopteryx was probably on a lineage that died out shortly after the fossils that we found of it, because that's just how evolution unfortunately works for a lot of lineages. So what should we call fossils that kind of fill in spaces between fossils that we already know about, if not transitional. Bronzati recommends that we talk about bridging gaps instead of finding transitional taxons. And he thinks that using the term bridging gaps is a little bit more consistent because otherwise, which gaps would you call transitional fossils and which gaps do you just consider another dinosaur in a group you already know about? So using the term bridging gaps is a little less problematic than talking about transitional fossils. And I'll try not to make this mistake in the future, but no promises. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join our ever-growing community of patrons, check out our page on patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.